Hello, and welcome to Future Forward Podcast, an unusual tech dialogue about the advancements and innovations which are going to affect your everyday lives today and in the future. Brought to you by Mazdar City, a world-class innovation hub and a pioneer in sustainable urban community in Abu Dhabi. I'll be your host, Steve Severance, head of program management and marketing, and I'll be joined by Ali Al-Sayed, an incredibly funny Emirati comedian. And together, we'll meet awesome experts and change makers to answer frequently asked questions on the hottest topics to keep future tech on your radar. Not only that, at the end of each episode, I'll be putting Ali to the test to see how much he's learned. Can I say this? You sound beautiful. It's like listening to NPR right now. It's my radio voice, Allie. <laughs> You're doing it very even, well. Even for the podcast. Thank you. Quick one for you before we start, since this is going to be about transportation. Would uh-huh. you jump into an autonomous cab with only a computer driving it? Absolutely. Let me tell you why. Um, I've had very bad cab experiences, and I would trust anything else right now. And most of those cab experiences were probably right here in the UAE, weren't they? So great. So it doesn't matter where I am, man. Listen, cabs can drive like cabs everywhere. We've got someone else here to help us with this. Who knows everything about cars, electric vehicles, autonomous transportation. And we have Sam Collins with us who studied automotive engineering at university. And after that, went on to become one of the world's leading journalists, commentators, and contributed in the field of tech development within Formula One. He has millions of views on YouTube. And he's also very passionate about sustainability and, and why we need to make a transition to more sustainable driving. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Well, thanks for having me on with your lovely radio voice. We already have the comedian, Sam. You're the expert. <laughs> hey, listen. <laughs> Thank talent you. Talent recognizes talent, Steve. <laughs> so let's let's jump in. Sam, why don't you, you talk to us a little bit about electric vehicles, about the state of uh, electric vehicles. From what I understand, some of the very first vehicles that came out over 100 years ago were actually electric. Yeah, the world's first motor race in the UK was in 1899, a circuit called Crystal Palace. It was won, in, won by an electric car, beat all the combustion engine cars. The first land, world land speed record holder, a vehicle called Le Jamais Content, driven by a wonderfully named Belgian called Camille Genazzi. That was an electric vehicle, and Porsche, the first car derived by, designed by Dr. Porsche, who went on to start a rather famous sports car manufacturer, was also electric. So electric cars really started off very early in the world of human propulsion, I'd call it, because it wasn't even the automobile era by that point. However, technology moved on, combustion engines took over, they were more efficient. That's why combustion engines won out. But the world's changing and we're reaching this crossover point between going from combustion engine with its issues to electric vehicles and hybrids, which also have their own issues. But we are going to eventually have to go fully EV, in my opinion. But we might not be quite as far along that line as some people would like people to believe. So, Sam, why? Why, from from a sustainability viewpoint, why do we need to go electric? Well, uh, combustion engines operate on, for those who don't know, they, you know, the internal combustion cycle, the auto cycle, operates in what we call suck, squeeze, bang, blow. So in, in compression, ignition, exhaust, you know, that, that whole cycle. And you're burning petrol. It's the expansion of gas or diesel, if you want to call it that. And it's expansion of gas and flames. And that creates lots of nasty emissions that come out of your tailpipes and basically choke the entire world. And then the extraction of oil uh, is not a necessarily a particularly clean process in itself. So there's a lot of things that need to change. That's why the world needs to change. We've got global warming. It's a fact. You know, climate change is reality. You see the effect it has around the world. 
And you're going to see some nations that are going to be underwater in 20, 25, 30 years. This is a big problem for society internationally. So we just simply have to tackle it and move to cleaner forms of transportation. And I say that deliberately, cleaner forms of transportation. That doesn't necessarily mean EV. Most of our listeners will think, oh, cleaner, it has to be electric. What else is going on out there? Well, you've got, for example, hydrogen. That's a really interesting area. So hydrogen fuels vehicles are a really exciting area of exploration. You're going to see a lot more of that in the Le Mans 24 hours in years to come. Red Bull are working on that uh, to build a new hydrogen type of racing car. That's going to be really interesting to see experimented with. Mechanical hybrids exist. It's, It's not commonly seen. Nissan tried it at Le Mans. It was a disaster. But it doesn't mean the technology doesn't work. So there's other technological avenues to explore. And what I think we're going to end up seeing is different solutions for different parts of the world. In a part of the world where there's ample, ample sunlight and warmth, then solar energy is a really clear and obvious solution. And that, that leads you to electric. If you live like I do in slightly rainy, soggy England, solar energy probably isn't the solution. And, but we do have ample gas and, gas and oil resources in this country. So could there be a more efficient way of using that? Could you use waste crops, for example, in an agricultural area? Could you use, you know, food waste to generate petrol? McDonald's, the uh, fast food chain in the UK, run all of their trucks on waste cooking oil from flipping burgers and various foodstuffs that they make. That's an interesting approach as well. And Formula One is moving into this second generation biofuel where they use waste agricultural product to generate the fuel for Formula One cars. And that's become, going to become a really big thing in 2026. So that could become the next stage. So there's no, it's no silver bullets, we'd like to say. There's different solutions for different areas and different types of vehicle. And that's where we're really going. Electric is going to play a massive role, but we're still going to see some combustion engines out there. So Ali, we live here in the UAE and we get um, approximately 363 days of sunshine a year which is why the Brits are here on vacation approximately 363 days a year. Uh, right. But people, people here like their cars, right? I mean, this, this is a country that likes its cars. What do you think? Will people give up their internal combustion engine cars and move to electric alley? I think, look, from, from a sustainability point of view, I think everybody is on board. Yeah, sure, we want to do something that is sustainable for the environment. But how is... How, how sustainable is it to my lifestyle? I'll give you an example. I was in Los Angeles once and, um, and my friend was going to drive uh, from Arizona to visit me. And that, that's about a five hour drive. He had to stop for three hours on the way because he needed to charge his Tesla. Uh, in, in terms of, you know, if I run out of gas, I can just stop. It might be a, a, a crowded gas bump or whatever. It'll take me 15, 20 minutes tops and I'm on the road again. So what are they doing in, in terms of that, like, are, are, are they going to, because we're it, like, like Steve said, it's pretty hot here. It's pretty warm here. So people aren't going to hang around, wait for their car to charge. Well, in the UAE, there's a really simple answer. You've got lots of sunlight and lots of space. The technology exists to do what we call hot swapping batteries. So you drive into essentially a filling station, you park up, a chap comes out and he'll take one battery out and put another battery in and off you go. It'll be about the same amount of time as it takes to fill your car up and have a cup of coffee and you're ready to get back on the road. So those three-hour waits on driving from Arizona to Los Angeles, that's why electric vehicles will never be this one-size-fits-all solution. But if you have hot swapping, 
you can have a battery sitting there on charge. So you just drive up and it's like just refilling your cup of coffee. It's very yeah. simple and off you go again. That Those facilities have been experimented with and they need to be implemented on a, on a large scale. But the UAE is perfect for that because there's lots of space, there's lots of sunlight. And for the two days a year, there aren't sunlight. You probably don't want to go out anyway. <laughs> See, that'll work because, you know, notoriously, oh. Arabs are always late. So I don't have time <laughs> to stop and charge. I'd be much later. Sam, one, one country on earth has done really well at electrical vehicle adoption, right? Norway. Why? What have they done? I mean, Norway. There's five million of them, though. What, what have they done, though, to, uh, to, to make it, to really get people to use electric vehicles? They, they, because there's so few of them and they've got a lot of space, even though it's a long, thin country, it's, it's really got a very small population. Um, they've got lots of electricity. So you've got all that, that, that water coming off the side of mountains, very easy to generate hydroelectric power. They're very good at that. And then they, they saw the issue coming a lot earlier than a lot of European countries have done. They realized you need to roll out an awful lot of charging points right across the country, more than you could possibly imagine you need. A bit like petrol pumps everywhere else in the world. You've got more petrol pumps than you probably need. But if they're there, then you know that you can get to where you're going. Also, journeys in Norway are not that long because the country's not that big. And also, the big factor is the huge amount of tax breaks that the Norwegian government rolled out for that. And Norway's always been so early, an early adopter on climate change and sustainability. So I think that's why the Norwegian rollout has been so, so successful. Ali, what would we have to do here? to get more electric vehicles in the UAE and in this and in this part of the world. It's hot, as you mentioned, and people love their cars. I mean, Ali is an Emirati. I know you drive either a Nissan Patrol or a Ferrari uh, and maybe both. Listen, uh, man, I, I don't know why people always ask me about Ferrari. That's It's not fair. Some of us drive Lamborghinis, okay? <laughs> uh. <laughs> no, listen, I, I think we have a very fast-paced life and and... Um, I looked at the Tesla for five minutes when when it was launching. Uh, the government has has uh, you know given a, as well uh, a lot of easy things like free registration. You don't have to pay uh, uh, road toll or any of that stuff, um, which which is very attractive as well because these things add up. But uh, when when you think about it, okay, you have five hundred kilometers and that is it, right? And in a day, I might be in a hurry. I might be like in, for my lifestyle, for example, I might be going. Uh, somewhere uh, in the middle of the night, you know, I have a, a comedy gig somewhere or whatever, um, I might get stuck. So I, I think until uh, technology gets better and until we have better heroes than Tesla, because I feel like, sure, they created the cool factor for electric cars. Their cars look good. The sports car at the beginning looked amazing. But what happens after that? I know I know American cars are, um, you know, GM is, is, uh, is, is experimenting cars here in the Emirates as well. Um, there's there's a whole fleet of electric cars coming in as as uh, taxis over here. So I, I think I think we're heading in that direction. But as a consumer, I mean, I got to get places real quick. Also, like, I mean, you live your state. We don't we don't even fill our own uh, gas in our car. We just stop the car there. Somebody comes in. They do it for you. You 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 pay and then you say thank you and you're out of there. So to convince people to say, listen, you're going to have to get out of the car, maybe hang out for about, you know, 30 minutes to an hour so you can make it to work. That's that seems a little bit of a reach. Speaking of, speaking of pain, let's mm -hmm. talk about money. 
Mm-hmm. Even in the UAE, I, I mean, I'm seeing gas prices that I've never seen uh, in the UAE. And, uh, you know, I know when I was back in, in California recently, they're kind of going crazy back back there with the gas prices. And I think in the UK, they're a bit higher. And in Norway, they're about up to $12, $13 a gallon. Sam, we have to get on a Tesla and give Elon his money. We know this costs more. But long run, how what's the cost to operate it compared to the Phillips, which I think everyone listening to this podcast is 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 well aware of what's going on in price of gas recently. Well, I mean, if you're driving around in a Lamborghini like Ali is, you don't care about the cost of the car, <laughs> the fuel, or anything, or tolls, or anything like that. It's, it's a little bit irrelevant. But I think um, for most people, the cost of gas is a prohibiting factor for doing a lot of motoring. I know people are cutting down driving at the moment. It's about two pounds a litre here in the UK. Work that, work out what that is in gallons. I have no idea. Um, quite a lot. But the cost of an EV, the cost of EVs is coming down quite sharply. And the cost of running them is absolute pennies. I mean, it's it's nothing really. It's almost like free electricity, particularly if you're somewhere like the UAE, Norway, Iceland, where energy costs are so, so low. Somewhere in the UK where energy costs are a bit higher, even then it's still not very expensive to run an EV. So, so Sam, I, I, we've we've heard from our, our somewhat reluctant Ali to to adopt electric vehicles, but what will the rest of the world need to do to put in place from an infrastructure and regulatory environment? Uh, I know this is sounds it's kind of a downer to talk about something this serious uh, when you guys are having so much fun, uh, but uh, from a regulatory and infrastructure environment, what do we need to do? to significantly increase our adoption of electric vehicles because 2050 is coming. So, you know, the world has kind of come around to say, we need to be carbon neutral by 2050. COP28 is coming to Abu Dhabi in, in about a year and a half, which is very exciting for us. UAE has said they'll be carbon neutral by 2050. The UK has said they're every European country carbon neutral by 2050. What do we need to do from a transportation point of view to get there? I mean, 2050, in my opinion, is a bit of a joke. It's far too late. It should be 2030. Um, and it's entirely achievable to go to 2030, but we need to get on with it. And adoption of electric vehicles is a big issue in that. And it's something I'm actively working on at the moment in my role as in, in local government in the UK. Right now, for the UK to even be close to its planned ban on new combustion engine vehicle sales in sort of eight, nine years' time, we need to be building 1,000 electric vehicle charging points per day, starting four years ago, and working 24-7, which obviously isn't going to happen. We're going to miss that target by miles. In fact, it's taken me three years to get about 50 of them installed in the area I represent, which and that is a big achievement. So we're so far behind the curve. And then I go to other countries and look around at what's happening. As I say, I was in Bahrain uh, just, just a few days ago. And I don't think I saw a single electric vehicle charging point the whole time I was there. Now, you're not going to be able to have mass market rollout of electric vehicles if there's no charging points. All right, Sam, while you were at the F1, you should have come over to Mazda City because we had the first uh, superpower Tesla chargers. We've just installed four more. But exactly what you're saying is true. There's not enough of them uh, uh, in the country and around the region uh, and really globally, because often there's a wait. We have four of them now just just opened up four more, but there's often a line to, te- to charge those. It also takes care of some of the problems you're talking about, Ali, of the three-hour charge, because you can get at least a half charge in 20 minutes. So, Sam, I want to I wanna 
finish up on how do we get more electric vehicles? What do we need to do besides infrastructure from a regulatory point of view? What can other countries do and other jurisdictions do that uh, that Norway has done? What, what's what's applicable for the rest of us? It's something that I've, I've actually been doing in my sort of local government role. I've, I've actually had it written into the local law, if you like, that if you build a house where in, in the area I represent, you have to equip it with two electric car charging points. That is the law. You simply have to do that. And then government needs to fund the creation of just more. Every car parking space, every car park, in every car, everywhere in the world needs to have an EV charging point. It's simple as that. You don't. You shouldn't have to think about where am I going to charge my EV. Things like lampposts. You know, you, only, you don't use them half the day because it's daytime. But there's an there's an electrical circuit going into that lamppost. Why can't you plug, plug your car into the lamppost and charge off that? All of that common sense thinking needs to be done. But then there's a whole sort of line behind the sort of points to charge your car. You've got to put big old power cables in everywhere. Then you have to think about how you're generating that electricity. Not such a problem in the UAE, but in the UK, does that mean more nuclear power station? Well, that's not a particularly popular idea. So then wind, wind turbines everywhere. Not everybody likes those. So there's a lot of hurdles to overcome. But ultimately, I think people need to sit back, take a realization that this is happening. So we've just got to deal with it, accept that it's happening and get on with it. So it's great that Mastar City's done that with the, the chargers. But still, we still need so many more everywhere else. And we can't stop on this. We've got to be absolutely super aggressive on getting electric vehicle charging points just put in everywhere all the time, because then we'll get that shift that the, the world really needs. I think what they're doing right now, if you go to any shopping center in the Emirates, there's uh, premium parking by the entrance that is reserved for uh, electric car charging. Um, and, and is that what you said? Because we, we spend a significant amount of time um, at shopping centers. That is where we go shopping or for, for leisure or any of that. Is that what you're saying, that we need to be where the people are? Is that enough? Uh, or do we just need to put it just across everything? Everything. Everything. It shouldn't just be premium parking. It should be every single parking space. Because if you're driving up in your expensive to run four before or your Lamborghini alley, you're going to park up and go, oh, well, all these other people aren't paying for petrol, essentially. They're paying cents, you know, and I'm paying dollars. And okay, if you can't afford a Lamborghini, but you've still got a big gas guzzling car, you're like, well, this is just a bit of a waste of money, isn't it? I could just have one of these electric cars. Oh, and by the way, the electric cars are faster and more exciting to drive than the, the big gas guzzlers. So actually, why am I driving a gas guzzler? I can drive an electric vehicle. But you need those charging points absolutely everywhere. There should be too many of them. You should be walking around going, we don't need this many electric charging points because there's not that many electric cars. It's chicken and egg. You have to put the egg first. Why don't we shift, why don't we shift gears a bit here, theoretically and uh, literally, uh, and, and talk about autonomous transportation? Because I think that, well, Having an electric vehicle is going to be more sustainable for the world, and we're all going to be driving one, I hope, in the very in a very short time over the next few years. We'll all adopt electric vehicles. That primarily, from a driving experience, is no different. You're still driving a car. The pedals still work the same way. Uh, you just get better acceleration, and it's cheaper to operate. But people still, we the world kills about 1.3 million people in car accidents each year. Uh, that is a much too high a number. There's something that has the potential to uh, lower that dramatically, and that's autonomous transportation or self-driving vehicles, uh, which would take Ali off the road 
and let, and let him sit there and, uh, and watch Netflix while driving, Ali. What would you, what would you binge watch while going from Dubai to Abu Dhabi? You know what? I've never watched Breaking Bad because I, I never had enough time for it. So I'd do that. Dubai to Abu Dhabi. I'll get an episode and a half each way. It's a great hey, man. <laughs> Gotta do it. Sam, what do you think it's going to take to actually make this? Uh, Cause this has become, honestly, this is one of my great surprises over my last 12 years at Mazdar is the rise of autonomous. Uh, Mazda is known for its autonomous transportation, starting with the PRT uh, put out by a Dutch company to get there, uh, and then with, with Navia. But we're still at a point where we're in somewhat controlled environments, where we have a technology that's, that's very advanced but somewhat limited. And, and then you see what companies like Waymo and Cruise are doing that seem to be like, oh, wow, we're going to get it. Like, this is the, like, we're six months out from autonomous transportation. And then each six months, it seems to be a pushback a bit. What's it going to take to really fulfill that promise that uh, of taking all of us off the road? Because as much as you like to drive, Sam, it sounds like M25 on a Friday night's no fun for anybody to drive. I would quite like to not drive the M25 on a Friday night and have a car drive it for me. That would be lovely. But the reality of the situation is unless you're like in Mastar City, which is purpose designed, purpose built with that in mind, Autonomous is still a major, major challenge because you have to mix a controlled environment technology, autonomous, with people like Ali driving on the road. And um, it's not easy. I I work a lot with uh, an organization called the IMECE in England, and they have the Formula Student Competition. And one of the new sections of that competition is an autonomous racing car competition. And the cars are very slow, very delicate, and quite often they try to kill themselves. The cars do, not the not the teams, the, the cars. And you've seen it in the racing series Robo Race. You're very lucky to see a car complete a lap without deciding to shut down or drive itself into the fence. Autonomous technology isn't where it needs to be yet. And the reason I believe it's not there is a lot of the companies involved in it are not investing in the motorsport element of it. Every single automotive technology ever, pretty much, has first been proved and developed in motor racing before it's become used on the road. And also, that means it will have to be mixed with real racing drivers, real humans making decisions in a different and perhaps unpredictable way, which autonomous cars may not be able to cope with straight away. Changes of surface conditions. And well, actually, I was going to ask you this question anyway. Um, I've been driving in Bahrain in the last few days, and I have absolutely no idea. And this applies to everywhere I've been in the Middle East, essentially how the lanes work, the lane discipline in the Middle East. I mean, Ali will be able to explain this, but... (laughs) Listen, it depends on where you are in the Middle East, right? So, for example, if you're driving in Jordan, then the lane is is a suggestion. It's not a rule. So you can be in it. You can be around it. Uh, If you're driving in Egypt, uh, it's it's a challenge. So they're like, listen, we've worked out three lanes here. How many can you work out? And every day people are like, we did 11, you know? It's really... It depends on... Uh, you know, the number of cars versus, I guess, how much road they have. I mean, there's 100 million people in Egypt. I mean, this is the problem. So you, an autonomous <laughs> car, by definition, will follow rules. The human drivers in the Middle East, and actually in England on the M25 on a Friday night, as I keep talking about, the rules are a little bit less well followed. So can an autonomous car learn to break its own rules? Because if it, if it can't, it's going to struggle driving in the real world quite a lot. And I think that's one of the issues that's being faced. 
The other big issue is a rather bleaker one. Um, and I know it's something the car companies are working on actively, but it's their lawyers and the the sort of the people around them, the corporate side of it. So at some point, an autonomous car is going to crash. It's just a fact. All vehicles are going to crash. There's going to be accidents due to the unpredictable nature of the road, of humans and wildlife even. So if an autonomous car is going to crash, and if you as a human are going to crash a car, you know the car's going to crash, you will try and point at the bit that when you're driving, you try and point at the thing to crash into that's going to hurt you least. Or if you're a racing driver, it will cost you the least money. Uh, if you're an autonomous car, it still has to make that same decision. And if you've got just a classic situation, the old man walking across the road, the young child, the pregnant mother and the businessman, which one do you program the car to crash into? Well, the lawyers and the money men at the car companies will aim at the child or the pregnant woman because they're the ones who are less likely to have the big life insurance. The old man is probably the correct answer because he's got the shortest amount of time to live. The businessman is the least likely because he's likely to be insured up to the hilt and that will cost the car company more money because they designed that car to make that decision. So they have to minimize their losses. And then the question comes up, because the cars will be able to do this. Well, if you've got five businessmen standing in the road and you have to hit one of them, do you hit the, the white English or American businessman or European, the Caucasian guy? Do you hit the Japanese guy? Do you hit the Arab, the black guy? Do you hit the South American? And can the cars, the car probably won't be able to tell some races apart. So do you hit the light-skinned person or the dark-skinned person? And that's some of the bleakness that autonomous is going to have to go through before it's really opened up to the world to be in a non-controlled environment. And those are the challenges that I think the world is facing. It's a bit of a heavy topic, but that's why right now, if you asked me, would I get in a taxi in London that was fully autonomous? My answer would probably be no, because it would end up not getting me where I wanted, because it would probably bump into a bus, a cyclist, or another taxi. Um, in a place like Mastar City, would I get into an autonomous taxi in a heartbeat because it's designed for it? But is there a solution where they create dedicated lanes, kind of like a tram, uh, where you know you go to self-drive mode? And, and in, in cases like people crash into into things because you know they're too tired, they're sleepy, whatever. In that case, you can choose to go on you know self-drive mode, and then and then there's a dedicated lane for that. Is that a solution, or is that not sustainable? It is a solution. Uh, it certainly works on the long road. So if you were going from Dubai to, to Abu Dhabi, one road essentially, yeah, you could easily do that. And you can have an autonomous mode. And they've been working on that since the 60s and said, well, it's entirely possible. And actually, Tesla's now have it, the autopilot system, and a lot of cars have it. Even my own road car knows when you're drifting out of a lane or if the car in front stopping and it'll stop for you. It's, it's, a, it's got some autonomy into it as safety features. So yeah, I think that is good. And there are cars that will track if you're drifting off to sleep and then will pull over for you if you do. Some cars will park themselves, which for me would be really helpful. To me, autonomous vehicles are about 99.9% .9 there. But it's that 0.1% that is so difficult to get there. Could racing be a way of helping to bridge that, that last step toward actual autonomous use? I think it's the only answer. It is the absolute answer. Until an autonomous car can go wheel to wheel with Max Verstappen in his pure aggressive mode through the final lap at Abu Dhabi, then I think the autonomous car won't ever be able to deal with the traffic on the M25 or 
driving from Dubai to, to Abu Dhabi and the lane discipline on that drive, it has to be able to react to human decisions, which it can't predict. Now, we know the electronic systems can react faster than a human can. That's simple. We know that. What the electronic systems have yet to get up to the speed on is the human bottom, as we call it. Um, your, your posterior is a more sensitive device than anything any autonomous car has. So a racing driver has particularly sensitive posterior, and they will be able to feel every motion of the tyres, every little bit of grip, every movement of the car in a way an autonomous vehicle hasn't quite got the sensor workout to be able to get through a corner. And until an autonomous, autonomous car can do that in the same way as a human bottom can, then it won't be able to compete. And it's the same sensation you get when you're driving down the road on, on any sort of highway. You know that the car's gripping or it's not gripping. You can see that that Honda Jazz just down the road is not driving particularly well and may make a little error and do something unpredictable. So you keep your distance. An autonomous car right now doesn't have that intuition that humans have. Now, that technology can be developed, but it's not there yet. So we got to nip it in the butt. <laughs> I, I knew uh, that we were not going to get past that little discussion with Ali, without Ali Wayne in there. That was kind of, kind of laid out for you. Uh, it was right there. So, Sam, one last question for you. When do you think, your prediction, what year and what location will we actually be able to use, the, will the first autonomous vehicles uh, be unleashed there? where you will have, and you'll call an Uber, and it will show up to your house or your apartment without a driver. It will know where to go, and it will drop you off wherever it is you want to go, and no driver will be in there, and these will be uh, regulated and approved. And what year and what location? Well, if you, um, if you watch the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Total Recall, it's on Mars in the future. But I actually think something like Mastar City could be as early as, sort of, I don't know where the technology is quite there, but it could be next week, essentially, because it's purpose-built for it. So you, you're really not far away in a place like that. Um, in a place where I live, I'd say we're 50 years away. I'm more of an optimist, Sam. Uh, and you, you're absolutely right about Mazdaar City. We are close to that right now. It's not quite at the Uber level of anywhere in Mazdaar City to, to anywhere else. It's on a fixed road. It's one of the few places that people can actually come and try it out, though. So if you've seen it and you say, I want to see what this feels like, uh, I highly recommend And next time you're in town, the F1 is at the end of the year. It, we might not have as an exciting the last lap as we did this year for you, Sam. But 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 at the end of this year, I invite you to uh, to come to Mazda City to actually ride it yourself and and to see what we're doing. Uh, but I actually think we're about I think we're four to five years out, and I think it's Phoenix, Arizona, for the first city to uh, to to do it. They've been. Uh, they on, wanna, Steve, you've never invited me. I just got called out by my comedian. What to do, uh, <laughs> Ali? Ali, you were always invited to Mazda City. Your questions just got harder, by the way. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sam, uh, spectacular to have you on here. Thanks for your insight in both uh, electric and autonomous transportation, uh, but also really into what F1 can do for us and car racing in general can do for the general public in terms of bringing technologies to market that are really going to make our lives both more sustainable uh, and safer. Uh, so I do invite you to Master City and Ali, I, I want you to come with him. Uh, I will. And, you know, Sam, I want to say thank you for your efforts, man. It sounds like you're doing a lot to make that happen and make it a reality. 
Uh, thanks for doing that, man. And, uh, and you know, Mazda, I think I'm the only one who's not doing anything about sustainable driving. I'm buying a Tesla. Let's do it. Now we're going to see what Ali's picked up on. I put Ali to the test. It is time for put Ali to the test. We have five questions for you. Number one, what do clean McDonald's vans run on? Oh, the leftover oil. They leftover like oil from what? From the French fries, exactly. From the French fries. Number two, in what year did the did an electric car win the first car race? Beat all the other types of engines. Oh my God. I mean, Sam said that very nicely and I was listening. Was it 1962? Oh, 1912. A no. hundred years ago. It was 1899. What country has the best adoption of electric vehicles? I know this. Norway. Number four. In what year is the world aiming to become carbon neutral? Okay. Um, I remember Sam saying that it was, uh, it was trash. He might have used a better word. But the year is 2050. He's looking for 2030. Oh, that's a bonus point. That may make That's a bonus me. point. That's a bonus I'm point. You are killing it. Number five. What part of the human body is more sensitive and accurate than a computer? In questions I never thought I would ever ask during a podcast or any other time in my life. That is correct. Um, I believe a, a nice way to say it is the tush. <laughs> Thank you, Ali, for keep, keeping this family friendly. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Ali. I want you to come back next week uh, for the next episode of Future Forward. We will be talking about everything metaverse. I don't know anything about it. You don't know anything about it. Everybody's talking about it. And we're going to have an incredible guest who's going to explain it to, to all of us. Uh, is it Mark West. It is Mark Zuckerberg. It's Mark all Zuckerberg right. going to be here next week. Do not miss that. I lied, Ali. I lied. It's Timothy West, the Vice President of Augmented and Virtual Reality at Unity Technologies. Much better, much better than Mark Zuckerberg. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you follow and subscribe to Future Forward wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us, review us, send us feedback. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, tell everybody you know. You can also learn more about Manistar City and how we're leading the conversation around technology and sustainability at www.mazdarcity.ae. Until next time, goodbye.